Chapter 24, Part 1 of Discoveries Among the Ruins of Nineveh and Babylon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by William Jones, Bonita Springs, Florida. Discoveries Among the Ruins of Nineveh and Babylon by Austin Layard. Chapter 24, Part 1 A List of Topics Discussed Ruins in Southern Mesopotamia, Departure from Hila, Sandhills, Villages in the Jazeera, Sheikh Karbul, Ruins, First View of Nifer, The Marshes, Arab Boats, Arrive at Souk el Afaij, Sheikh Agab, Town of the Afaij, Description of the Ruins of Nifer. Excavation in the Mounds, Discovery of Coffins, of Various Relics, Mr. Lofus's Discoveries at Urka, The Arab Tribes, Wild Beasts, Lions, Customs of the Afaij, Leave the Marshes, Return to Baghdad, A Mirage. The south of Mesopotamia abounds in extensive and important ruins, of which little is known. The country around them is inhabited by Arams of the tribe of Rubiah and Al-Maidan, notorious for their lawlessness, and scarcely more intelligent or human than the buffaloes which they tend. One or two travelers have passed these remains of ancient civilization when journeying through the Jazeera, or having received descriptions of them from natives of the country. Mr. Loftus was the first to explore the most important. Being attached, as geologist, to the mission for the settlement of the boundaries between Persia and Turkey, he went by land from Baghdad to Buzra to join its other members. As he was accompanied by an escort of troops, he was able to visit the principal ruins on the way without risk. He found the tribes well disposed towards Europeans, though very hostile to the Turks. Taking advantage of his favorable feeling, and relying upon the protection of the Arab sheikhs, Mr. Loftus returned a second time alone and was able to excavate in some of the larger mounds. He obtained, during this expedition, the highly interesting collection of antiquities from Worka, now in the British Museum. All these ruins are best reached from Hila. The sheikhs of the Arab tribes living near them are usually in friendly communication with the principal people of that town. Owing, however, to the present disturbed state of the country, I was compelled to ask for safe conduct from Agab, the sheikh of the Afaij. The Afaij dwell in the midst of extensive marshes formed by the Euphrates about fifty miles below Hila. On the eastern border of the swamps rise the great ruins of Nifer, which I was first desirous of examining. After some discussion, it was finally settled that we were to go by land, keeping as much as possible in the center of Mesopotamia, and thus avoiding the neighborhood of the Euphrates, as the Arabs 
were now congregated along the banks of the river. Zaid, with a guile of his acquaintance, agreed to accompany me. My own jabours were, of course, of the party. Having hired mules and laid in a proper stock of provisions, tools, and packing-cases to hold any antiquities that might be discovered, we began our journey on Wednesday the 15th of January. The weather was bright and intensely cold. The sky was cloudless, but a biting north wind swept across the plain. It was the middle of the Babylonian winter, and a hard frost daily whitened the ground. We left Hilah by the Baghdad gate. The Bir-Akdar was with me, with the rest of my Mosul servants. My huntsman, old Sayyid Yazim, wrapped up in his thick Arab cloak, bore his favorite hawk on his wrist. He was followed, as usual, by the greyhounds. The Jabours went partly on foot, riding by turns on the baggage horses. Mr. Hormuzd Rassam was wanting to complete our party. He had been kept in Baghdad by severe illness almost since our arrival, and for the first time during my wanderings in Mesopotamia he was not with me. We followed a track leading toward the center of the Mesopotamian desert. Our course was nearly due east. About six miles from the town we found ourselves amidst moving sand-hills, extending far and wide on all sides. The fine sand shifts with every breeze, and the wrinkled heaps are like the rippled surface of a lake. When the furious southerly wind sweeps over them, it raises a dense, suffocating dust, blinding the wayfaring Arab, and leaving him to perish in the trackless labyrinth. After four hours' ride, we left the sand-heaps, and again came in sight of the black belt of palm-trees. After stopping to drink water, we proceeded to a small hamlet called Alak, and took up our quarters for the night at the museum of its sheikh, who, notwithstanding his poverty, received us very hospitably. He related to me how from the numerous artificial mounds in the surrounding plains were frequently taken, after rain had washed away the soil, earthen jars and coffins containing ornaments of gold and silver. As we continued our journey during the following day, still keeping in the desert, we passed one or two small encampments of the Zobaida tribe. The Arabs, alarmed at the approach of so large a party, and believing us to be horsemen on a foray, sallied forth to meet us at some distance from their tents, flourishing their weapons and chanting their wild war-cry. The plain, although now without any stationary population, was once thickly inhabited. The lion, the hyena, the wolf, and the jackal, the wild boar, the fox, and the porcupine, now alone break the solitude of a wilderness once the seat of the most luxurious and civilized nation in the East. It would be needless to describe the few deserted villages we passed during our day's journey. Their mud walls, once a protection against the wandering Arab, 
were unable to resist the encroaching sand which has already overwhelmed the empty dwellings in this region the habitations of men are turned almost in a day to mere heaps of earth the district is called shomali after a ride of six hours we reached an ancient mound of considerable size called harun on its summit was a ruined imam zeda Muslim oratory it was a sacred place to the arab and on this account had been used as a burying place the grave of the wandering arab is rarely far beneath the surface of the soil and the wild beasts of the desert soon scrape away the scanty earth human skulls and remains scarcely yet bleached by the sun were scattered over the ruins mingled with bricks pottery broken glass and other relics of ancient population we had scarcely passed harun when a party of arabs on horseback and on foot suddenly came forth from behind the lofty banks of a dry canal they had seen our caravan from afar and had waylaid us after they had followed us for some distance they turned back to their tribe deeming it prudent not to venture an attack as we were fully prepared for them shortly after their departure a gazelle rose from a thicket and bounded across the plain Said jasmine unloosed his hawk and i pursued with the dogs the sight of horsemen galloping to and fro alarmed an arab settlement gathered round a small mud fort belonging to a chief called Karbul. the men armed themselves and came out against us our affage guides however soon made themselves known to them and they then escorted our caravan to their tents dancing a wild dance shouting their war cries singing war songs and firing their matchlocks most of them had no other clothing than the shirt taken off their shoulders and tied around their loins their countenances were singularly ferocious their bright eyes and white teeth making them even more hideous long black matted hair was scattered over their heads in horrid confusion and their bodies were tanned by the burning sun to the color and substance of old leather their sheikh Karbul, was scarcely less savage in his appearance though somewhat better clothed however ill-disposed he might have been towards europeans or travellers in general he acknowledged the protection that had been extended to us by the afage chief and led me with words of welcome to his spacious tent his followers excited by the late alarm and now full of warlike enthusiasm were not however to be dismissed until they had satisfied themselves by performing various warlike dances they did so in circles before the tent raising a few tattered flags and deafening me by their shouts and barbarous songs these wild beings little better than mere beasts lived in hovels made of mats and brushwood they fed large herds of buffalo but the greater part of their sheep and cattle had been driven away by the bedouins their tribe was the Chabinet, a branch of the al ukra the next morning Karbul sent his son and a party of horsemen 
to escort us for some distance on our road. We had to make a considerable circuit to the east to encompass the marsh, which is now spread over the lower part of the Mesopotamian plain. We passed numerous artificial mounds, covered with fragments of bricks, pottery, glazed tiles, richly colored glass, and other relics that marked the site of Babylonian ruins. Canals, too, no longer fed by the Euphrates, everywhere crossed our path and limited our view. The parched soil outside the swamp has become fine sand, amidst which small tufts of the hardy tamarisk form the only vegetation. After two hours' ride, we emerged from the labyrinth of dry canals, and, ascending a heap of rubbish covering some ancient ruin, we beheld, looming on the horizon like a distant mountain, the principal object of my journey, the Mounds of Nifer. They were still nearly ten miles from us. Magnified as they were by the mirage, they appeared far to exceed in size and height any artificial elevation that I had hitherto seen. To the east of us rose another great ruin called Zibliya, a lofty square mass, apparently of sun-dried brick. It resembled in form and was scarcely less in size than the well-known remains of Akerkuf near Baghdad. Between us and Nefer were still many mounds of ancient canals. The largest of the former, covered with bricks and pottery, was called by our Arab guides El Hamra, the Red. The principal canal, whose waters had once been confined between two enormous embankments, ran in a direct line toward the ruins. It is now dry, but appears to have once supplied the city. After a journey of five hours, we reached the ruins of Nefer. They differ in general form from the great mounds of Assyria, with which my descriptions may have familiarized the reader. Although at their northeast corner is a cone similar to those of Nimrod and Kala Shirgat, yet in their broken outline, in their division into several distinct parts, they have more the appearance of the remains of different buildings than of one regular platform surrounded by walls. In this respect, they are not unlike the Mujalibe, Kassar, and the Amran of Babylon. The mounds cover altogether a very considerable area of ground, and stand on the edge of the marsh, which is gradually encroaching upon them, and which occasionally, during the high floods of the Euphrates, completely surrounds them. They are strewed with the usual fragments of brick, glazed and unglazed pottery, and glass. A loose, nitrous soil, into which the feet sink above the ankles, forms a coating about a yard deep over a harder and more compact soil. In the ravines, large earthen jars and portions of brick masonry are occasionally uncovered by the rains. Commencing my search, after antiquities, as soon as we had reached the summit of the principal mound, it was not long before I discovered in one of these newly formed ruts a perfect vase about five feet high, containing human remains. Other objects of the same kind were found by the Arabs who were with me. 
but I left more careful researches to the time when I could commence excavations below the surface. Leaving, therefore, the ruins, I hastened to the place where my tents were pitched about two miles beyond the ruins in the margin of the marsh. In front of the encampment was a small lake or pond from which the reeds seemed to have been carefully cleared. We had sent one of our Afaij guides to inform Sheikh Agab of our approach. I had not been long seated in my tent, when suddenly a number of black boats, each bearing a party of Arabs, darted from the reeds and approached the shore. They were of various sizes. In the bottom of some, eight or ten persons sat crouched on their hams, in others only one or two. Men standing at the head and stern, with long bamboo poles of great lightness, guided and impelled them. The largest were built of teak wood, but the others consisted simply of a very narrow framework of rushes covered with bitumen, resembling probably the vessels of bulrushes mentioned by Isaiah. They skimmed over the surface of the water with great rapidity. The tiradas, for so these boats were called by the Arab, drew up along the bank in the open basin before our tents. The largest evidently contained three chiefs, who landed and advanced toward me. They were the sons of the sheikh of the Afaij. Their father had sent them to welcome me to his territories. They brought with them provisions for my caravan, as their village, they said, was still far distant, and it would be impossible to transport our baggage and lead our horses thither before nightfall. The young men were handsome, well-dressed and well-armed, and very courteous. The complexion of these marsh Arabs, from constant exposure to the intense heat of the sun, is almost black, with the usual contrast of eyes of extraordinary brilliancy and teeth of the whiteness of pearls. They wear their hair in long, well-greased plaits. The young sheikhs had been ordered by their father to remain with me during the night and to place a proper guard around the tents as the outskirts of the marsh were infested we were assured by roving bedouins and midnight thieves i gained as other travellers had done before me some credit for wisdom and superhuman knowledge by predicting through the aid of an almanac a partial eclipse of the moon it duly took place to the great dismay of our guests who well-nigh knocked out the bottoms of all my kitchen utensils in their endeavour to frighten away the gins who had thus laid hold of the planet. Soon after sunrise the sheikh's own tirada issued from the reeds into the open space. It had been spread with carpets and silk cushions for my reception. The baggage was placed in other boats, but the unfortunate horses, under the guidance of a party of naked Arabs, had to swim the stream and to struggle through the swamp as best they could. The armed men entered their various vessels, and we all left the shore together. The tirada, in which I sat, was skillfully managed by two Arabs with long bamboo poles. It skimmed rapidly over the small lake, and then turned into a broad street cut through green reeds rising fourteen or fifteen feet on both sides of us. 
The current, where the vegetation had thus been cleared away, ran at the rate of about two miles an hour, and, as we were going toward the Euphrates, was against us. We passed the entrances to many lanes, branching off to the right and to the left. From them came black boats filled with Arab men and women carrying the produce of their buffalo herds to the souk or market. Herds of buffaloes here and there struggled and splashed amongst the rushes, their unwieldy bodies completely concealed under water, and their hideous heads just visible on the surface. Occasionally a small plot of ground, scarcely an inch above the level of the marsh, and itself half a swamp, was covered with huts built of reeds, canes, and bright yellow mats. These were the dwellings of the Afage, and, as we passed by, troops of half-naked men and women and children issued from them, and stood on the bank to gaze at the strangers. The lanes now became more crowded with tirades. The boatmen, however, darted by the heavier vessels, turned the sharp corners, and managed their frail barks with great skill and ease. The openings in the reeds began to be more numerous, and it required a perfect knowledge of the various windings and streets to follow the right way. This singular scene recalled vividly to my mind the sculptures of Kuyunjik, representing the Assyrian wars in marshes of the same nature, and probably formed by the waters of the same river. The streets through the reeds and the tiradas, or, or boats of rushes smeared with bitumen, are faithfully delineated in the bas-reliefs, showing how little the barbarous inhabitants of these great swamps have changed after the lapse of nearly three thousand years. If we may judge, however, from the spoil of furniture and vessels of metal, probably of gold and silver, carried away from them by the conquerors, the ancient tribes appear to have been more wealthy and more ingenious than their descendants. Soon after entering a narrow canal, we stopped near some larger and better-built huts than any we had yet seen. Before them, at the water's edge, and waiting to receive us, were drawn up a number of armed men, at the head of whom stood a tall, handsome Arab. He was attired in a long robe of scarlet silk of Damascus, over which he wore one of those cloaks richly embroidered in gold thread down the back and one arm peculiar to Baghdad. This was Agab, Sheikh of the Afage. As I stepped out of the Tirada, he threw his arms round my neck and gave me the usual embrace of welcome. The chief led us at once to the Museum. The guest-house was built of the same materials as the smaller cabins, but they were far more tastefully put together. It resembled in shape the boiler of some enormous steam engine. Reeds bound together were bent into arches at regular intervals, and formed a series of ribs, upon which were stretched the choicest mats. About fifty persons could conveniently sit in this hut. In the centre was the usual array of bright pots and tiny cups ranged in circular trays round a smouldering fire. A hideous black slave, crouching upon his haunches, 
was roasting coffee and pounding the fragrant beans in an iron mortar down both sides were spread carpets and mats soft cushions of figured silk were specially prepared for the european guest the museif stood at a short distance from the other huts and in a corner formed by two water streets branching off at right angles in front of it was the harem of the sheikh it consisted of several cabins and an enclosure formed entirely by walls of reeds and mats beyond was a great collection of huts and in the middle of them the bazaars consisting of double rows of shops all of the same frail materials so that this arab town was built entirely of mats and reeds agab received me in the most friendly manner and entered at once into my plans for excavating describing the ruins existing in the neighbourhood he ordered his people to raise a hut for my servants and the jabour workmen and to pitch my tents in the open space opposite the museif building was not a lengthy or difficult process for the materials were so simple within an hour the mats had been dragged from the harem the bundles of reeds turned into graceful arches and the cabin duly covered in as a dwelling-place however the small island on which the sheikh of the had thought fit to erect his movable capital was not perhaps the most desirable in the world had the euphrates risen by any sudden flood we would have been completely under water my proposition to encamp on the mounds of nifer was negatived by agab on account of the dangers from the bedouins evil spirits beasts of prey and the like so i made up my mind to remain at the souk the sheikh believing i was in search of gold was always my attendant with his followers he knew so many authentic instances of enormous wealth having been dug up at nifer that it was useless to argue with him upon the subject he related to me in the usual expressive manner of the arabs the following story in the time of hatab the uncle of wadi sheikh of the zubaida and Kamalir of the tribe chanced to be in damascus with his camels as he was walking one day in the bazaar an aged man accosted him o oh, sheikh of the caravan said he i know that thou art from the southern jazeera and from the land of the zubaida god be praised for sending thee to me now there is in that country a great mound that marks the site of an ancient city of the unbelievers called nifer go dig in the dry bed of the chateau nil in the midst of the bruins and thou wilt find a stone white as milk bring it to me and thou shalt have a reward double the usual hire for thy camels both there and back the cameleer was at a loss to guess how the old man knew of the stone but he did as he had been asked and in the place described to him he found the white stone which was just a camel's burden he took it to damascus and gave it to the sheikh who first paid him his just reward and then broke the stone into pieces before him it was of course full of gold and the philosopher had learned where it was to be found in the books of the infidels
End of chapter 24, part 1